one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Episode 523 for the week of Monday, July 29th, 2013. Yes, we are finally back, and we are finally back with a news show. And joining us for this show is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, how you doing there, Sawyer? Well, glad to have the band back together again. You're not kidding. Me too. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Here we go. Everybody hold on. Hold on, because we're coming, and uh, let's not wait any longer. It's been so many weeks since we've done a news show. We hope you've enjoyed the specials that we've been putting out while we deal with our summer hiatus, and uh, we're ready to go, and let's start things off and uh, to show that in the last month or so that we've made some progress. Gene? Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it, Sawyer. Uh, we're hoping that uh, Progress 52, which was launched on Saturday and recently docked with the International Space Station on Saturday evening, uh, I believe the uh, uh, it was about six hours between launch and, uh, and arrival to the ISS. Um, it carries on board some interesting cargo, you know, not to mention fuel and all that, but also a, uh, a last-minute... Uh, uh, sort of a last-minute deal that they got together real fast because of what had occurred uh, back on July 16th with uh, Luca Parmitano. If you're not familiar with uh, with that, let me go ahead and fill you fill you in. We had a little bit of a abortive uh, extravehicular activity or EVA or spacewalk that day. Um, uh, Parmitano's suit essentially malfunctioned. There was water coming in from somewhere. Uh, in, uh, and pouring in, unfortunately, in, into the, uh, into the helmet and, uh, uh, flight controllers, uh, wisely abandoned ship on the EVA and got, uh, told, uh, Luca to, to bring it on back in. Um, he was okay, but it was, uh, you know, a little bit of a scary moment there, uh, for that. But there's some troubleshooting equipment on board, uh, Progress 52 that, uh, will help, uh, kind of sort of some insight into what may have happened to Parmitano's suit and hopefully go ahead and correct the problem so we can start doing EVAs from, uh, from the U.S. segment again. So this was, was this was a critical, uh, indeed a critical uh, uh, progress mission and glad it's, uh, it made it to its quarry safely. I thought it's interesting lately how Russia has been taking the fast lane, as they said during the launch coverage, with um, obviously the Soyuz now trying to go in one day and now the progress going only four orbits. And, I mean, it's a lot of instant gratification, I guess, and I think it's great. And, um, you know, it's nice to see Russia doing well. 
Well, yeah, I mean, they've had their, uh, they've had their, uh, shall we say their wrinkles in the past, uh, a uh, couple of, a uh, couple of months. And sorry, you're going to go into that a little bit more, uh, in a little, little bit with, uh, with the Proton M failure. But, uh, indeed, we, that, the, uh, the, the, the situation during that second EVA was a little scary. Uh, I don't know if anybody was, that was listening to this program kind of sort of listened in on that. And there were some moments where literally my heart was in my mouth. Uh, where, uh, Chris Cassidy was asking, you know, Luca to go ahead and, you know, grab his hand if you can hear him. Uh, you know, usually when you, when you hear that, it's usually in a, you know, somebody's obviously in, in some sort of distress. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, I think Parmitano was, 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 uh, trying to fill us all in as, as, in as to what was really happening with him. And I mean, it, it was like <laughs> putting your head into a fishbowl just about. Uh, with the way the, the water was coming in. Uh, and, and we're still not exactly too sure what failed on the suit. So we, we need to troubleshoot that and find out what, uh, what occurred. Uh, and, uh, we, we'll, we'll get it right. But it's just, I'm, I'm just thrilled to, uh, to see, you know, at least the Progress 52 making it. Uh, and, and indeed, Sawyer, this is, um, I don't know if this is going to be basically the, um, uh, the modus operandi going on, going further with all the Soyuz flights to the ISS either. As you know, they've been doing that accelerated, uh, one day, you know, to docking for, let me see now, two flights. And I don't know if they're going to do that on, on, on the next one, but I have a feeling that they probably will. So, um, and we had a discussion here a while back ago on that. You know, do, do we go ahead and kind of do the leisurely run around? Or do we, uh, you know, go for the straight shot? I mean, the straight shot's a long day for, for your crew. I mean, you're up about 11 hours. But in my opinion, I'd rather be up about 11 hours and only in that little tin can for a very short period of time, uh, than have to go around a couple orbits and wait till the next day to, to, to dock. That's, that's just my opinion. And that might also be the, the opinion of some of the crews. I don't know. I'd, I'd love to ask some of the astronauts that same question. I mean, I guess the big factor behind all of this is do they get the supplies that they need? You know what I mean? Like it, the fact that they were able to send up the progress relatively rapidly and get the repair or the hopeful repair for the uh, spacesuit problem. I think that's the big thing with, you know, things like progress or any of these vehicles. And I think that's important. And not to mention a little bit of home. Uh, I remember seeing uh, uh, Luca Parmitano saying that when they opened up the progress, you could actually smell the fruit in there, and uh, that must have been a real welcome, uh, uh, welcome sensation after living on board ISS for a while. Uh, you, you know, you, you've got stuff from home in there, you know, and, you, and you've got uh, you know fresh fruit that was which you don't normally have readily available to you on a regular basis on the ISS and all that. So, yeah, it's a huge morale booster. All right, and I think the big thing is that in that case, it doesn't really matter what the vehicle is, because I know one thing that we talked about a lot in the pre-show is the fact that, you know, <laughs> who knows if we're going to be even using progress anymore after this, especially with all of our commercial. Yeah, I th- I think I heard something, and and folks can uh, there was something running around at the at this weekend's uh, New Space 2013 conference. I heard I saw some. Uh, some static about it uh from and f- especially from one source they were saying that uh uh the US is coming off progress very very soon uh and throwing it all into the the hands of our commercial partners now 
uh, which means uh, Dragon and uh, you know with SpaceX and Cygnus with uh, you know with Orbital Sciences, they're going to be in the catbird seat now. They have to go ahead and step it up. And uh, Cygnus too is uh, going to be tested for the very first time in uh, in September. So we're all kind of looking forward to see how that that uh, that mission is going to fly and how that's going to go. But um, yeah, it looks like our commercial partners are are really now in the driver's seat from a from a U.S. perspective anyway on uh, getting supplies to and to and from the International Space Station because Dragon, remember, has that upmass capability, whereas Progress does not. And I believe that is the only. I'm, no, I'm sorry, down mass capability, whereas, whereas progress does not, uh, HTV does not, ATV does not, and Cygnus does not. So, so Dragon is kind of key in, in making sure that, uh, this all works. But there's some interesting things you can do and some interesting little experiments that you can do. Um, because you, you know, you're in an expendable vehicle, I believe there's a, um, and I don't know if it's going to be on the on the flight demo demo uh, test, but I think it's going to be on one of the Cygnus vehicles. Where there's actually going to be a study on how fire uh, works in uh, microgravity conditions. So I, I don't know if it's going to be on the demo flight, but there is there there is an experiment scheduled. I remember hearing that at uh, in April at the uh, at the first Antares uh, launch. So so that's that experiment's going to be on Cygnus at some point and. Uh, it will give us some further insight as to how fire behaves. So, you know, there are some interesting little experiments you can pull off without having that, you know, because you don't have that down mass. So it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how Cygnus behaves up there and, uh, and make sure that it, uh, it and, and does what it's supposed to do. But, uh, hats off again to the, to the Russians. They could probably go ahead and use this good, uh, good pat on the back because, uh, well, Sawyer, you've got the, the next story coming up, uh, Sawyer, you've got, uh, well, it, it was not too pretty for, uh, it was not a pretty day over at, uh, at Baikonur, uh, when we were gone. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? Yeah, you know, you've been gone for a while when we talk about a story that originally happened on July 1st, and that was the failure of the Proton M rockets that, uh, as it went up, if you've seen the video, it's extremely dramatic where it starts to go to one side, then it goes to the other, goes upside down, and ends in a large fireball in the ground of Kazakhstan. Well, they finally found what caused the problem, and uh, I'm just going to say, this goes back to 2011 when we talked about Russian reliability and how they were touting themselves about how reliable they are, and then they had their list of failures. Well... When you hear the cause, if you haven't heard it yet of this one, you're going to be shaking your head. Basically, there are sensors on the rocket that tell it which way is up and which way is down. The angular velocity sensors, known as DUS. A couple of them have arrows that were supposed to be pointing skyward to the top of the vehicles. That way they know this way up, a couple of them were pointed down. Basically, the flight control system was getting some wrong information, saying half of them saying the rock's going up, half of them saying the rock's going down, and yeah, you get the explosion that you got. Which, to think that just a simple wrong installation, putting the arrow wrong side up or wrong side down, could cause a pretty big disaster that could have some big implications on future launches, especially with a big profile launch coming up shortly. 
Which, if you don't know, there is a new piece of the International Space Station going up, which is set to launch on a proton rocket. That could be a problem. So, <laughs> they better get their act together and put their arrows right side up. Yeah, sorry, the, the whole, I remember we had this conversation, and, and this was right after STS-135 landed. Uh, Atlantis's, uh, APUs weren't even cold yet. And, uh, there was a, uh, an article on the Roscosmos, on the Roscosmos website of all places, uh, touting that the era of Soyuz, the era of, era of reliability has arrived and, um, basically kind of panned the shuttle just a little bit, you know. Um, well, yeah, this is, you know, one of the reasons why, and I, I said this is one of the reasons why airlines don't tout their safety and reliability records. Because one mess up and, and there you go. So you never see that in any airline commercial. Um, well, there have been a whole string of screw ups, uh, of late over there, but this one was blatant where it could have, um, been spotted by any, t- anybody working in QA, QC or, you know, quality control, quality assurance, uh, for, for this particular flight. So, you know, you have to wonder what the heck is going on over there, and and this one was just just not. You know, you you can almost understand you know a part failure or something like that. This one, I mean, was this one was just there was just no excuse for this. And uh, Voice of Russia today uh, uh, basically said that now I understand that. Uh, uh, there's going to be some polygraph tests uh, taken of of the individuals that worked on this craft. I'm sitting there. I think this is, you know, I've talked to a couple of people on Twitter and, and Facebook and all that. And most of us came up with consensus was this was sort of a, a cover your hindquarters uh, reaction to the whole thing where they're just looking for a head on a platter to get to give someone and say, yep, you're the one that's at fault. And that's that. But, you know, I, I think it's it, it's it's an indicator of a huge problem within the system, and that is you know, quality control, quality assurance. And as you pointed out, um, we were talking even during pre-show, uh, there is a new module going up to the ISS that I believe the peers docking module is going to be retired, and a, and a replacement is going to be brought up. And this is a critical component for the Russian segment on on the International Space Station, that proton launch has to work right. So I'm I'm I can only guess what kind of uh, quality control and quality assurance uh, procedures are now being looked at uh, to support that particular launch. And you have to wonder too, since this is a component of the ISS, is um, ESA involved in any QA, QC on this particular flight, or, you know, is NASA involved on any QA, QC on this particular flight? And that might be a, a, an interesting question to present to Mr. Mike Safferdini, the um, uh, space station program manager. Right, but I mean, one thing that they didn't even do was basically visual inspection. I mean, there's any of the electrical tests aren't going to catch it. That's because the circuits worked. It's just... How do you not recognize that an arrow is upside down with the visual inspection of the vehicle? You would think that someone would catch that. So hopefully 
they'll do visual inspections or at least closer visual inspections because if they lose a piece of the ISS, you know it's going to get a little more media than just, oh, a pretty rocket exploded. The other tragedy, too, sir, with this particular flight was that, um, all right, I believe the, the cargo was part of the Russian GPS system, uh, the Glasnost system. Uh, those satellites, by the way, were not insured. So that the, the, the whole, the whole thing was a total loss. I believe the, the loss was to the tune of $200 million. Uh, not pretty there. But indeed, you would think, and this is what I was, was referring to with, you know, quality control and quality assurance procedures. Um, <laughs> you know, you've, got to do the visual inspection you've got to do this i mean mark you're a you're a uh, an faa technician i'm going to chime in here real real fast i'm sure you guys do 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 you know quality assurance internally as well correct oh absolutely of course i'm dealing with the same equipment uh you know day in day out month in month out year in year out in some cases decade in decade out that uh, you're very familiar with, but still, once you put hands on a particular system, um, I am doing my best to keep track of what have I done, particularly if you're troubleshooting or if something goes wrong while you're, or you get some unexpected result while you're uh, making adjustments or evaluating the equipment, what have I done, what was the chain of events where was the point where something went off nominal? And did I cause it? Did I discover something? And if everything goes well, which 99% plus percent of the time things go well, you still think, okay, what have I done? Did I skip any steps? Did I leave a, a simple toggle switch in the wrong place? And yeah, there is a, a very, but it's a work ethic. And that's probably where at least some of the breakdown has been. There used to be a, I forget who the company was, but some years back there was an ad campaign for, for somebody here in the U.S. And their slogan was, quality is job one. And there's at least individual or individuals that are part of that program that quality is not job one. Or that wouldn't have, that mistake wouldn't have been made. But, um, you know. Mistakes are something that uh, <laughs> we all come by uh, quite easily at times. So maybe it was just a a bad day, and and maybe the software on the rocket didn't have the capability of sorting out um, conflicting signals. You know, maybe there should be a, a a better a better control system looking at those inputs and finding some way to except override or, you know, uh, I think the term that I remember hearing in the shuttle program was abort to orbit, you know, <laughs> something goes wrong, you abort your flight to orbit, you know, uh, maybe they don't have the same capabilities. We're, we're guessing, but uh, it's a shame. That's the thing that has us all shaken our heads. Yeah, oddly enough, today too, you bring bring an ATO situation up today. I believe also we were talking with some folks that uh, today, July 29th, marks uh, a little bit also of an anniversary. I think it was 1985 where the first ATO and the only ATO or board to orbit scenario occurred in the shuttle program was on with uh, with shuttle Challenger. Yep. Um, 
So, uh, but yeah, Mark, you make you make wonderful points. I mean, I know you're 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 an electronics technician. I thought you know you you'd uh, you you touched on something really interesting, and that was the work ethic, and that's something that that may be lacking over here. So that's something maybe the maybe you know I believe it's the Kusinev Design Bureau needs to look at and needs to figure out what they need to change in order to do that. Maybe I mean I, I still remember uh, and and this is this is pulling from from my own own history uh, in the 1990s we 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 lost I don't know how many Mars missions and there was a, a a design you know there was a whole review after what the heck happened and what the heck we were going going and what the heck we was was going on with all this and uh, uh the board and which i believe uh uh JPL's Ed Stone was part of that they came up with a whole new work ethic here called you know mission success first uh they kind of did away with the better faster cheaper scenario and 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 painted this whole whole scenario of, of what can we do to make sure everything works and they laid down the ground rules they put that ground rule together and maybe maybe um maybe uh, uh the kuchinev design bureau who i think is responsible for proton i may be wrong on that somebody may will, will, will most certainly check me out there maybe that this is what they have to do maybe that they, they have to adopt that exactly and make sure you check which way your arrows are Alrighty then, so uh, we move on next to Mark, who's going to shake things up a little bit. This is a uh, a bit of a follow-on to a subject that I've already mentioned on a previous show this year. Sorry, I don't remember which show it was, but I think I'm going to cover it well enough, and I'm going to give a little extra bonus that I think will make it even more interesting. The bonus is a YouTube video. The subject is about a NASA technology that has been designed to stabilize rockets and that it can potentially now help buildings survive earthquake damage. It's a patented technology. It's called fluid structure coupling, and it uses simple physics to dampen potentially harmful shaking in structures. Now, NASA designed this as a device to fit inside a rocket engine's liquid fuel tank to calm the effects of intense vibrations that the launch vehicles experience during liftoff. A source for this is a press release from Marshall Space Flight Center uh, back about two and a half weeks ago in the early part of July. Now, technology has been extensively tested at Marshall, and what they've done is they've taken these the center's tallest structure, their 365-foot-tall dynamic test stand, they fitted this four and a half million pound building with the rig that's designed to make the entire structure move. And that's why I want to uh, encourage you to take a look at the video because when you see the video and the effects of this and the, uh, the measurement instruments that are showing the difference between this device being engaged and disengaged, it's quite dramatic. Now, they used a 14,000-pound water reservoir and massive weights on the top floor of the building. And during the testing, the weights were moved to give the building a perceptible sway. When they engaged the fluid structure coupling device located inside this water reservoir, the movement was nearly completely stopped. So they found that by 
incorporating a small device weighing less than 100 pounds, they can reduce vibrations of, let's say, a 650,000-pound launch vehicle. This device controls that interaction between the fluid and the structure, calms the vibrations that will occur during launch, and they found that they are able to use the fluid propellant that they're already carrying to control the vehicle's response. Now, we will have the link to this video. This is on the channel named NASA Marshall TV. The name of the video, if you don't go to our site to grab the link, the name of the video is NASA Technology Stabilizes Rockets and Buildings. It's two and a half minutes, and I think you'll be more than impressed. I'm also just going to add, you can get that link if you are using a program such as iTunes by clicking the little I for more information in the description as well. And Mark, this came from, again, this came from a pogo problem that they were having with, with, with the Ares 1. Well, I do remember referring to that when I first brought this up a few months ago. Okay. But in the press release, they don't specifically mention Ares X. But I remember that uh, making that comment that this was something that I think had its roots in the Ares uh, program where they had a concern about this tall, you know, single uh, column rocket and what would happen. Of course, the Ares 1X, the second stage was a dummy. First stage was a uh, shuttle program, uh, solid rocket booster, essentially. And so it, it, you know, certainly isn't the same as any rocket that would ever happen after that. But I think this is the roots of the development of this, uh, this fluid structure coupling engineering that they've done. So again, another benefit from a from a program that unfortunately no longer exists. But uh, uh, this is again, your I, I guess this can be filed under your tax dollars at work and and uh, some of the knowledge that's going to come from it. So great, that is that is just really too cool, Mark. Thanks. Yeah, glad to see the technology actually being used for practical purposes now. And just to add in practical purposes. It can be used to keep aircraft, ships, oil platforms steady during high winds, waves, and other weather events. Anywhere where fluids and structures coexist. So this has a wide scope and this is something that in the future as it's designed into buildings and structures, uh, that's where the benefits will take place. And of course, when you uh, decrease the stress on a structure, you increase its uh, overall lifetime. If you think of aircraft that sometimes fly far, far longer than any of us would imagine in terms of the years of service life that a airframe has, if they can improve that even more, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mark. And again, link will be in the show notes to that video. Alrighty then. So we are on to round number two, and this goes to Gene for something new, or at least new space. Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, little story out of uh, the uh, New Space uh, Conference, New Space 2013 Conference this weekend. Um, Deputy Administrator Lori Garver was uh, speaking at the conference and basically floated an idea. Uh, this is in reference to the infamous asteroid redirect or asteroid retrieval mission uh, known as ARM, which has been uh, getting quite... Uh, 
being literally uh, quite the political hot potato, but uh, originally the the mission was scheduled to go ahead and snare an asteroid anywhere between seven to ten meters. And, um, well, she's proposed that perhaps NASA should go ahead and go after one that's kind of bigger than that. And I'm going to quote directly from her from a uh, from a uh, Space News article here, quote, if we're saying that this mission is going to help us protect the planet, maybe we should consider going after a larger asteroid so we can specifically drive the observations for larger asteroids that are actually threatening to, you know, that are actually a threat to us. So essentially she's, she's trying to basically make the case for planetary defense. Um, it, as far as, uh, trying to really boost the armed flight going, uh, they have received, or NASA has received, over 400 proposals from uh, from business, from uh, from all kinds of entities, trying to go ahead and say, "Hey, what is the best way to snare this asteroid?" Now, everybody's also probably seen that lovely little uh, motion picture as well, where um, this this electronic this this electric propulsive device goes ahead and goes up to an asteroid, deploys this large bag if you will and you know, essentially envelops the asteroid in this bag and and uh, essentially keeps the asteroid at skate at station keeping probably about the l2 point and this is going to be also the first uh piloted mission for the orion spacecraft to go ahead and rendezvous with the uh this this electric propulsion system that has captured the asteroid to bring a sample back from this asteroid and return it to Earth for study to just see what this thing is made of. Um, a lot of people, this, this mission has become such a political hot potato. It's, it's ridiculous. And do I actually think we're going to, is there enough time to build any type of political consensus for this? I'm on the fence. I, I personally don't, I I really am thinking that this mission is probably going to go the way of, unfortunately, Constellation, uh, because I just don't think Congress is is going to go ahead and fully support this. There has been a in our absence, there has been a huge budget row um, about the future of the NASA budget. The the House of Representatives handed a a budget in for, I believe the, the final total was about $16.6 billion. And they were saying that, oh, we, we, but we still want to do this moon base and we want to go to Mars. Huh? You can't do it on $16.6 billion. So they, they basically cut the budget to the bone, cut a lot of planetary science out too in the process. Uh, the Senate is trying to go ahead and be a little bit more kinder to, uh, uh, to, uh, to NASA. And I believe the budget proposal there is about $18 billion. But now I think we're going into conference and, and that, uh, that, that should be kind of interesting between the House and the Senate and trying to hammer out a deal there. That's not going to be happening. Everybody's going away now in DC, uh, for their vacations and so on. So, um, a lot of this is going to have to wait for a little while longer. But, uh, uh, I, I mean, <sighs> Where am I going with this? I think personally, and this is just me, me speaking, I don't know, I don't think there's time to build the political consensus needed 
for this particular flight. Do I think the asteroid mission is worth it? Probably if we're going to do it for planetary defense. But a lot of other folks in Congress see it another way, um, that NASA is going to go ahead and do the, uh, you know, research and development work for the two asteroid companies out there, uh, planetary resources and deep space industries. And I guess they're, they're saying, well, why should the U.S. taxpayer do all the R&D for, for these two companies? Why don't they go ahead and embark on it themselves? And maybe this is a job for, for, uh, for commercial. So I don't know. Um, I'd love to hear, I still would love to hear, uh, uh, what uh, you folks are thinking about too, as far as this flight's concerned. And will it actually see the light of day? Um, I, will I eat crow on this? Probably, but I, I, I don't think there's time enough to go ahead and build a consensus for this. The other reason why too is we've got a, got a presidential election coming up in 2016. And I think pretty much that's probably going to go ahead and clear the decks, meaning we were probably going to see something happen. Um, uh, a lot, uh, <laughs> a lot further along, uh, with, uh, with NASA's primary objectives. And whoever the new administration is, they're going to want to take this in their own direction anyway. So I'm not sure that this asteroid mission is going, going to fly. Um, do I think the commercial space program is in energy jeopardy? No, who matter, no matter what happens, I think that's, that's going to continue. I think, you know, uh, the, the space taxis will continue, but, do I think the, the arm mission is going to fly? Tough question. We'll have to see. Um, there was also a debate, too, uh, between uh, Robert Walker, who was a former, uh, the former uh, House Science Committee chairman uh, and uh, former congressman, and also uh, Deputy Administrator uh, Lori Garver. Walker was defending uh, sort of the, uh, the goal-driven program as opposed to Lori, who is defending sort of the technology-driven program that NASA seems to be undertaking at this point. Um, One of the things that Lori did say during this little debate here um, was that, quote, you know, you can't just pick a a place and go there. You have to go ahead and define why you're doing it. Um, And uh, she also said, we have suffered in her view, from trying to relive the Apollo program. Now, I'm trying to go back through, and nothing we have done in human spaceflight in the past 30 years with shuttle reminds me of Apollo. We did a lot with shuttle. And you want to talk about, you know, a technology-driven program. In essence, that's what shuttle was. You know, we've been in this technology-driven mode for a while. So um, maybe a shift to a goal-driven program is, is, is required. I don't know. And I'd also love to hear, um, hear uh, get human in, uh, your folks' uh, input on that as well. Uh, do you think that uh, you know, we should continue going down this technology-driven path and to go ahead and prove these new technologies, prove that all the stuff works before going you know, to, uh, to Mars or some other destination? Or should we just go ahead and put all our chips in, on the table and say, yeah, we want to go to Mars and here's why? Um, I, I'd love to, I'd love to go ahead and, and hear your opinion out there as far as all, all that. And I'm going to throw this one to the floor. Guys, what do you think? Do you think we, we should be continuing on, on the technology driven arc 
or do we, you know, we, we go ahead and do the de- do the destination development? Well, first off, let me throw in and say that I've been trying to avoid talking about the NASA budget, so I'm going to bite my tongue and continue to not discuss that lovely discussion that went on earlier in the month. But in terms of this, um, after hearing Charlie Bolden talk at an event at the Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, you know, I'm honestly a little bit more sold on the asteroid first, and here's why. Like you were mentioning, a big thing is the technology. The fact that we still have major problems such as radiation to deal with and things like that. We're going to have to test out new techniques and things, and what better way than somewhere that we haven't been without, the you know, not going back to the moon, but somewhere where you still have other dangers to deal with. I think that that's a good start to get some of it worked out. Plus, think about what we did in the, you know, nine or ten years leading up to Apollo. We had to test the technologies. I know this is a very different example and different environment. I don't know if you can compare the two, but I'm going to try. The fact that you've got the fact that we were trying to first get into space and make sure humans could survive and then work on longer durations and longer durations until finally after the long duration gemini we were able to work our way towards apollo i don't know how much of that is technology driven or just we needed to learn driven but either way we're going to have to deal with the new technology needs and the new learning techniques of surviving you know a six-month journey each way as well as the day on Mars and I mean you're talking probably two years so I think that's a whole new thing on its own even if you're dragging in a you know seven eight meter wide asteroid yeah sorry there's a lot of stuff we still need to learn about the about going to Mars I'll, I'll agree with that I mean uh, even uh, just a few months back uh, MSL had released its its radiation data and it was not pretty um, ditto with uh, some other things that are going on. And also, MSL is taking readings of the Martian surface right now to find out, too, what kind of radiation issues that uh, the, our astronauts are going to run into. We're also seeing some in, some stuff with the sto- soil, too, on, on, uh, on Mars. It's sticky as anything. So you're going to have the same problem that you had on the Apollo lunar m- missions with a lot of soil, you know, hanging around and getting into the habitat possibly so you have to go ahead and work on how you're going to deal with that that issue as well there's a lot of um, you know learning curve things that we get we have to do and this is another reason why i, I kind of you know with all due respect kind of poo poo the uh, uh the mars one and and the inspiration one flights because i you know they're 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 ridiculous in my, in my opinion um the uh, I mean, can w- will we get some technology out of those those two efforts? Probably, yeah. Um, so you know, in that that at, at that instance, they're they're probably a godsend. Will that technology be leveraged in when we actually shoot for Mars? Probably, but um, you know, will either one of these two missions actually fly? The answer is probably no. Um, but uh, to you know, to go into what you were saying, Sawyer, too, a little bit, uh, Gemini and Mercury. We, this was more of a learning curve type thing. We we needed to to we needed to find these things out because we'd never done them before, um, and that's where I think we need to do with Mars, and that's what we need to have to concentrate on. Mark, why don't you chime in here a little bit? I'm I'm hogging a mic. 
I'm going to go back to a comment that Andy Shear made when uh, he and I were talking about his experience with the space program. And I asked him, I said, where do you think the excitement is going to be in the in the years to come? Do you think it's going to be with government uh, programs and activities, or do you think it's going to be in commercial space? And he said, well, I'd like for it to be with uh, the government, but they don't seem to be able to, and I'm paraphrasing, they don't seem to be able to to pick a course and stay with it. So he felt like the excitement was going to be in commercial space. So I'll stop with that. You know, it's funny. Kent Rominger, when I talked to him, said the same thing. Uh, Kent is with uh, ATK right now, and uh, he's on uh, one of their, their he's on one of their special projects team. Kent is also a former astronaut, and he said essentially the same thing. Um, where you know, it, it, we just seem to have a problem in this 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 country to go at, at, where where we just don't want to stick to something. Um, we go ahead and we shift gears a lot. I mean, you know, we, we, we went from Apollo to shuttle and that was reinventing the wheel right there. And now we're trying to go ahead and build that infrastructure back, but we're not too sure what we're going to use it for yet. And to me, that's kind of sort of a budget target there too. So I have to agree with Andy on that one. Um, where, you know, the government, the, the government just doesn't seem to, you know, get on the same page, if you will. And I think that's that's a lot of what's happening now, and we're seeing it happen. And it's obviously something that we're going to have to keep an eye on as time goes by and, as you mentioned, uh, as administrations change and as budgets change. But for now, we'll keep a very close eye on what's going on. Alrighty then. So, on to the next topic. And this is something that a lot of people I noticed did not really know about until Comic-Con this year. However, we broke the news almost two years ago, back in 2011, of the new Cosmos reboot. And I remember we were talking about how long in the future it was going to be, waiting till 2013 or now 2014 for the release. However, at San Diego Comic-Con 2013, a trailer for the new Cosmos, hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson was released, and I'm just going to play the beginning of it for you. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. It's time to get going again. The clip then goes on to show some very interesting segments with a lot of music going on in the background, but mainly just some short, brief clips. And I noticed a lot of things about it, including some interesting attempts at similarities to the original set of Carl Sagan's and some homages to him and some recreations of locations. But I'm going to open this up to you, Gene, because I know that you 
had some very strong opinions on this. Well, you have to remember too, sir, I was bit by the original. And I remember the original Cosmos. I, I, I was, in fact, the only thing I, I wanted for Christmas, my parents asked me that, for that, that question in 1980, what was the only item I wanted for Christmas that year? And I told them that the only thing I wanted was Sagan's book. Um, the original Cosmos was, uh, subtitled A Personal Journey. And, um, if you haven't seen the original gang, I would really suggest you watch it. Uh, I know it's been, you know, what, almost 30 years, uh, uh, from when the original show aired, but, um, it holds up fairly well. And in some cases it's a little dated, but in, in some case, but in most cases it holds up fairly well today. And, um, Sorry, some of the, the homages that you mentioned too were in there. The, the, the cosmic calendar, for instance, that's one of the, uh, the vehicles that was, were used in the original cosmos. Um, the ship of the imagination, another homage there too. Uh, even the set to some degree kind of resembled, um, the, the original set from the 1980s program, program, except the, the, I, I don't believe that there was a chair. That kind of looked like the, the, the bridge of the enterprise type chair. Um, that chair exists in, in the new one. It doesn't exist in the old, but the, the tenor of, of the original series and the tenor of what I'm seeing as far as the, um, it, it, uh, as far as these previews concerned in the new series, um, it's extraordinarily different. I mean, even the music from the, from the original series was a little more, well, I mean, it, it depended more on, on, on a, uh, Evangelis soundtrack. Um, Evangelis is a, is a, uh, grand composer in, in and of himself, but, um, it, it, a lot of the pieces for, for the original Cosmos were taken from his library of music. Some other pieces also were, were used from others. Um, but it was more, the character was more subdued, if you will, uh, in the original. Um, also, there was something, I don't know, deeply personal about the whole voyage, uh, that, that's, that Sagan took us on. First off, when you redo Cosmos, redoing Cosmos, first off, is like trying to redo Casablanca, you know, in my opinion, or Citizen Kane. Um, it, it's, it's one of these, these, you know, real, real, you know, uh, just bulwark pieces of, 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 of work that, that just stand the test of time forever. And so to approach something as legendary as, as Cosmos, you, you really have to be careful what you're doing. But, um, the Sagan approach was, it was, was extraordinarily per- personal. And you can tell there was a lot of there. Um, there's also a difference between the two presenters. Neil deGrasse Tyson is, you know, known for, for being rather opinionated and bombastic. You can go ahead and sort of hear, even hear that in the new soundtrack for the, uh, for the new Cosmos series. Um, whereas Sagan was, was kind of sort of the scholarly professor that we all kind of wish we had in college or, or in high school to, to describe a lot of these things. Um, 
I'm going to just go ahead and uh, take a uh, take a as it comes picture. First off, I am thrilled, you know, the, the plus on the plus side, I've given some of my minuses, but on the plus side, I am thrilled that something like Cosmos is going to appear on a uh, network television as opposed to PBS where the or the public broadcasting system here in the United States, um, which aired the original. Um, that means that this particular series will probably get a lot more airplay um, since it is appearing on a major network, in this case Fox. Um, it, it should be an interesting kind of thing to see, but... I again, it's like comparing the. I guess it's like comparing the two Star Treks, if you will. Um, you know, the the, the original to uh, to the current uh, iteration that's running now, and um, it's uh, the, there. There are two different critters, and if you go into that understanding that yes, you're going to see some, you know, homages to the original in there, but if if you take them both. As they, you know, as they come, basically, if you take them both as separate, separate entities, I think you're going to be okay. I think the best, better example would be the, the original Battlestar Galactica as opposed to the old, as opposed to the current, current iteration. Um, it would be a better, better analogy. But, um, if you take them as two separate entities, I think you're going to be all right. I'm probably going to be apoplectic at times watching it because I still remember, um, Sagan's approach. It'll be interesting to see how Neil deGrasse Tyson approaches some of this, because uh, they're two different. They were two different men. Sagan, I think, you know, he had, you know, was also, you know, kind of a passionate guy, but just his attitude was a little different in the way things he way he approached things as opposed to Tyson. So it'll be interesting to to see from that aspect. Um, am I looking forward to it? Yeah. Am I going to watch? Yeah. Um, and we'll probably talk about it here as as uh, time goes forward, and we might even, you know, do sort of a a little, you know, slice of what what we thought and what what's coming. So um, we'll, we'll have to see how 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 we're going to handle that in 2014. But um, will I watch the thing? Yes, um, and I would probably urge everybody else to do the same because this is going to be. If the original Cosmos is telling us anything, this is also probably going to be quite an event that we're probably going to be looking back on 30 years from now and saying, wow. So let's see. I'm, I'm, my fingers are crossed, but I'm going in, you know, with an open mind, but I'm, I'm also going to have to remember my own advice. These are two different programs. So if you do it, go ahead and do that then I think we're going to be okay. But am I excited to see something about science on a network television uh, entity? You betcha. So that, that's that's the real great takeaway from all this. Same. We may, as you were mentioning about discussing the episodes, go back to uh, kind of what we did with our first few episodes even of reviewing a different TV <laughs> show, except I have a feeling this one, A, will be better and B, will last a full season, but that's a whole nother story. But I just want to throw in the fact that, I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you've seen him on shows like The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, any of the late night shows, you'll know that he is a very eccentric guy and has been called this generation's Carl Sagan, and 
I think that's an important comparison because it's not saying that he is Carl Sagan and he never will be and never can be. Carl Sagan had his own unique way of presenting, his own style, his own techniques, and he was the original. He set the bar pretty high, but Neil deGrasse Tyson is today's Carl Sagan for today's audience, which I can guarantee you is very different from the original audience of the first series of Cosmos when it aired on PBS. Besides the education level, the attention span is different. People are expecting much flashier visuals and graphics as opposed to the what were high tech at the time for Carl Sagan series. But it's a totally different audience, a totally different generation. And I think Neil deGrasse Tyson knows that. And I hope that they took that into consideration. And I'm imagining that they would for the new version. Well, if the trailer's an indication they did, I mean, the, the, the effects are, are far better. I mean, they're, they're almost, they're, they're studio quality. I mean, they're, they're, you could, you could show some of this stuff on a, on a big screen and they'd hold, and they'd pass muster. Uh, you know, I mean, from what, what I've seen thus far, they, they spared no expense in, in the, uh, uh, the visuals area. That's for darn sure. Um, and there are, there's more information that, that, that we've discovered on Mars, obviously in the past 30 years, I'm sure all that's going to be presented and updated. There's other things that, that we've discovered in the past 30 years. Uh, you know, Hubble has found everything. For instance, the, the original cosmos, we didn't even know for sure if there were planets orbiting other stars. Okay. How many planets has Kepler cataloged thus far? So you know, that's these are the things that have, that have changed, and it's indeed good that we're kind of bringing the series in to to kind of sort of uh, present new data and new information to a to a you know and a, a, a wider audience, obviously because we're on network television. But um, you know, again, I have to. If it sounds like I'm arguing with myself here, I guess I am. Because I am still kind of, I still appreciate Sagan's approach and the way he he did this. It was a a dearly personal, dearly you know, it was a dearly personal journey that we all shared with him. And it'll be interesting to see how Neil deGrasse Tyson approaches this, and if, is it going to be that you know going to have sort of his stamp on this, and uh, uh, how he's going to approach it. He can be very, very, you know, bombastic and um, opinionated at times. And we'll just have to see if that, that comes out to you. Might interest you a little tidbit that I see on Wikipedia that the widow of Carl Sagan, if I pronounce her name wrong, please forgive me, but Andrean was one of the co-producers of the original yeah. Cosmos series. And she is executive producer of the new series. Yeah, I, 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 I recall seeing that too, Mark, and that kind of makes me feel a little bit better, if you will, about the series. And I think we also, sorry, when we talked about this two years ago, we brought that up. Um, she basically said too, I, I, at that time, that it, you can't redo the original, and we're not going to try here. Um, it, it's, it's going to have to stand on, that original program is going to have to stand on its own. And, um, its its successor will will also have have a whole different new have a whole different new flavor to it so we'll see what they've cooked up i also believe too one one of the artists uh the original artist i think uh 
John Lumberg is also Lumberg is also involved in this project. Uh, he was also one of the original artists on um, on the first Cosmos, so it should be interesting too to see how this all has his own touch as well. Exactly, I'm honestly looking forward to seeing this come out. I want to see more trailers in a way of you know actually seeing a clip of the show just to get a taste of it. But we'll wait till 2014 if we have to. Alrighty then, now to finish things off here, we missed in our absence the anniversary of the moon landing of Apollo 11, which happened July 20th, 1969, and we'll finish things off here today with Mark and some Apollo story. Mark? I'll make this quick. Uh, It's just something I saw that really it wasn't the story so much. The story itself is interesting, but some of the images is what uh, just absolutely stopped me and and had me uh, staring at them and thinking and wondering. But it's a Wired.com uh, article on July 20th, and it's the headline. It says, the best space images ever were taken by Apollo astronauts with Hasselblad cameras. And I'd like to point out for many that are growing up in the digital age, these were film cameras. And the Hasselblad had more than a 50-year partnership with NASA. Uh, Wally Shara carried the first Hasselblad used by NASA. It was a 500C model number camera. He purchased at a Houston photo supply shop during his turn around Earth in a Mercury rocket in 62. That's the point where I'll stop talking about the Wired.com story and refer you to Spaceflight dot nasa dot gov and there's a menu option there called gallery and gallery will take you into anything you want to see from our nation's space program and in particular the pictures that just absolutely stopped me in my tracks and i'm looking at one now is from apollo 9 and it's a view of the apollo 9 command and service module docked with the lunar module Now, in the background, you see astronaut David Scott uh, half out of the hatch of the command module. Uh, The photo is taken by Rusty Schweikert, the lunar module pilot, and he took the photo from the lunar module porch shooting across at the docked command module. Now, what I want to know, it says in the imagery description for this, that the... uh, commander of Apollo 9 was James McDivitt, and he was inside the lunar module. It seemed like the boss could at least get one of the two choice uh, jobs on on that particular exercise of uh, poking his head outside. The picture itself is just jaw-dropping beautiful because you see something that I don't ever remember seeing quite this way, and it's a lunar module that's pretty shiny, a command module that's absolutely glistening with reflection of the sun. The earth is down below. They're over one of the oceans. You, It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, you know, take a look around this spaceflight.nasa.gov and look through the galleries and, and you'll find Apollo 9 if you want to look for that particular group. But I think you'll find a lot of really gorgeous pictures. 
And if anybody wants to link to him on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, the social media of your choice, I think you'll find them to be very popular and some that'll get some comments from people that by and large don't take the time to to dig into the resources that we've got available to us. And I think you'll find it appreciated that you uh, bring these out here and there. Oh, Mark, you're bringing back so much memories. I used to have my wall just about my wall, in my bedroom when I was little, just about pasted with the half of these pictures that you're, that you're talking to and talking about here, you know, these little eight by 10 glossies that NASA back then would also issue. And I think I may still have a few of them upstairs, but wow, you're bringing back a whole lot of memories. You know, all of these photographs are bringing a whole lot of memories looking at them. I mean, I, I, while we were, while you were talking, I went over to the site and my jaw is still dropping from all of this. And, uh, yeah, if, if you want to go ahead and, um, you know, spend, you know, lose yourself in a, in a photo library. This is one, one to do it guys. Uh, you know, so get that link down. <laughs> exactly. Always beautiful imagery to look at. And thank you, Mark, for sharing that. Now, normally we go for three rounds, but these first two rounds and all the news that we missed in the last couple of weeks filled us up. And, uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us. Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer, and two shout-outs. One, today as we record, uh, which I believe is Monday, July 29th, uh, happy anniversary to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Today was, uh, it turned 55 years, years old. The old National Advisory Council for Aeronautics was essentially dissolved, and uh, its successor agency was born, and uh, you know, oh, the places we've gone thus far and all oh, the places we still yet to be yet to go to. So congratulations and a huge shout out to uh, somebody that really, really took some really good care of us. And got we uh, who's a bit of an astronomy student over in uh, uh, in uh, South Jersey who took care, very good care of me uh, at the Manchester Applebee's. So thank you. Miss Jackie W for doing that. I told you I'd go ahead and give you a shout out and thanks for for being a new listener. Appreciate it. Always glad to have all of our new listeners and thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. And I would like to encourage uh, this could be during or after the fact, but encourage all the folks that are participating in the space social at Kennedy Space Center this week to have an absolutely fantastic time. Tell us all about it and. Uh, Libby Doodle, sorry I didn't get our discussion <laughs> on the show the last few weeks, but since we didn't have a show, it's kind of hard to to promote something that's already in progress. So everybody have a great time, and uh, thanks, Sawyer. Thanks, Gene. Yes, to everyone at the impromptu rogue social going on at the Kennedy Space Center for the Space Shuttle Atlantis exhibit, please enjoy. Again, if you haven't seen the exhibit, Definitely get a chance to take a look at it, and of course you can always listen to our episode that we released on July 4th, so that you can take a look and listen to our opinions on it and some pictures that we posted. It's great. But we are back, and we shall hopefully be back next week with the show. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm-hmm.